Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. While she might be best known for shaking up the All England Club when she showed up to Wimbledon in a white Lycra bodysuit, our guest today has had a robust life in tennis. She posted wins over Hanuman Likova and Ivan Gulagong, and at one time she was 19 in the world. As a junior, she won the Orange Bowl and was one of Nick Boletari's first students. Now she's the head of tennis at the much-historied Beverly Hills Tennis Club and recently produced the Emmy Award-nominated documentary, Love Means Zero. Anne White is going to tell us what she thinks Madison Keys needs to do to win a major, how she got the Boletari documentary off the ground, and how her famous bodysuit made its way to Wimbledon. We met up with Anne at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. First of all, I mean, we're not at the Tennis Hall of Fame, but we're in the clubhouse at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. I have a feeling people play cards in this little alcove. There are photos of Clark Gable and Ellsworth Vines and Pancho Segura and Billie Jean Morfitt from 1957. Billie Jean King, before she got married, on the walls here and... Uh, we're here with none other than former world number 19. Is that right? That's right. Ann White, uh, how are you? Great. And this is a cool place. I mean, Beverly Hills Tennis Club is, I mean, this is old school Beverly Hills, really. Yeah, we're coming up on our 90th year anniversary, and it was started by uh, Groucho Marx and uh, Charlie Chaplin. This they, club they, was. They couldn't get in the L.A. Tennis Club. They said, hey, we're going to start our own club. So that's, that's, that's how it happened 90 years ago. Wow. So. I mean, you can't make that up. Groucho <laughs> Marks. <laughs> you just can't make that up. <laughs> we do a five-set format. Um, our first set, we call it the off-the-court report. And you were fresh off the court. I think you were you have a junior program going on. Yeah, we had a little junior scrimmage today against uh, L.A. Tennis Club uh, 12 and under kids. We Oh, is that right? It, yeah. was a, it was an inter-club? Yeah, just an inter-club little match. Clay Redwood's a, a friend of mine, and he emailed me and said, hey, do you want to do a junior match? And I said, yeah, let's do it instead of the regular practice and just trying to get these kids um, more court time, more experience playing points, and, you know, having a positive time on the court. Playing some stage. tennis. Yeah, exactly. You, uh, you are the head pro here at Beverly Hills? Tennis director. Tennis been, director. Yeah, yeah. What are your days and weeks like? as that person. Uh, you said you post like a hit and giggle at Greenbrier. Is that some, do you do some celebrity? Yeah, I have other projects that I work on too. We have three other pros here and I just pretty much teach as much as I want. I started a junior program here, which is really great. Uh, we have a ladies league that I help, uh, help them with as well for their doubles. And it's really just up to me. We have um, three other great pros. Eric Tano is one of the pros here as well. Uh, Tommy Haas plays here a lot, Ben Spadia, and really great people, and um, I'm having just a great time. Last year for Fourth of July, we had a costume party to come dressed as your favorite American hero. You know, I mean, we do sort of goofy stuff here. It's, it's Beverly Hills, and um, people um, enjoy their tennis and enjoy their doubles, and, you know, we have live ball on Friday nights, and it's a very small, intimate club, and... Um, and now, if somebody wants to take a, a lesson with you that is not a member, is that something that can happen or is that not something that can happen? It's not something that can happen. It's a members, member only club. So. That's it. Yeah. That's it. You're not, you're not in, you're, you're out. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, my main work is I'm a, I'd like to think that I'm mostly a documentary filmmaker and I know that you were a producer on the Bulletary documentary. First of all, I want to congratulate you. You got an Emmy nomination. Uh, the film was incredibly well received. Um, and that's true, right? You were, you were a producer on the film? Uh, well, I actually had the idea. I, I was one of Nick's first students and my parents actually are retired on Longboat Key and I've always kept in touch with Nick and um, from sophomore year in high school to finishing high school, I lived down there with a the family for when he was starting at the colony and um, Nick and I always kept in touch and um, over Christmas about four years ago, I was going down to see my parents and I said, you know, I wanna go see Nick. I haven't seen him since he came to my dad's 75th birthday and you know, Nick at this, that point, I think was 83 or 84. And so we had lunch at Philly's, his usual spot. And um, he set up uh, an appointment for me to go tour the, the IMG Academy, which is 500 acres. I don't know if you've been there, but um, it's quite something. And so I um, had lunch with Nick and I was like, holy cow. I said, I, I can't believe everything you did. And um, I said, one of my dearest friends is Jill Mazursky, who's a... Um, uh, her father, Paul Mazursky, did, you know, Down and Out Beverly Hills and a bunch of other great films. And she's done uh, numerous documentaries that have been incredible. She's got one coming out on David Crosby next month. It's it's very, has been very well received so far. So anyhow, um, I said, Nick, I said, there's a story here. I said, let me go back to L.A. and see what I can do. And um, I love documentaries myself. So um, I came back and uh, we had meetings here. And two of my producing partners here, I met with Jill and then David Stein. And I said, look guys, you know, this, the colony's been in, uh, tied up in litigation for eight years. It's like, um, ghosts live there now. I said, we could shoot at the colony. You know, I had all these, these thoughts and they said, we need to find a director. And then we found a director and literally spent three and a half years trying to get this film made. It was shut down twice. Um, and, you know, talk to everybody and their mother and brother about it. And somehow, some way, uh, we got it made. So, um, we, uh, Jason did an outstanding job. Yeah. Um, for those of you that don't know about this, we've talked about it before with Nick on our show, but Love Means Zero is the movie. It was on Showtime. It ended up getting nominated for a sports Emmy. And it is the story. And, and you know... I was saying to Scott yesterday that it is amazing how many of just our guests on our show have have passed through Nick's aura or his academy or his whatever it was. I mean, Paul Anacone, you, Andre Sa, Tommy Haas. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, for Decade to decade to decade, it's amazing. What was your involvement to make the film? I yeah. spoke to every player. Uh, I went up to Boris at the U.S. Open, and I hadn't seen Boris in over 20 years. And I said, Boris, you know, I'm working on this film about Nick Bellateri, and I know you worked with him, you know, during this period and the 90s. And I said, you know, would you talk to us? And he looked at me, and I said, Boris, do you remember me? And he goes, Ann, I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> And then he said, yes, I will. Nick was very good to me. And that was pretty much the response from everybody. Um, I coordinated, you know, all the players, all the locations. 
Um, some of the music for the film, Everyone's a Winner, I'm a huge fan of Hot Chocolate, and I was like, look, you've got to play this song, put this song in the film. So I was pretty much involved in every aspect of the film. It was incredible. It, you know, the, the beach where the colony was shot, Nick, it was 98 degrees, and he was on that chair, no joke, for... Uh, eight hours one day and Make I think I had 24 Gatorades you know and he was just incredible and you know the part where he reads about the letter from Andre and he breaks down a teeny bit that was one take it was all so real and his uh, recollection of stories and then just his life in general I mean after doing it now you, you, there's you know several more documentaries and Nick because you know you could focus on the family you could focus on a different period because we focus really on the 90s, you know, when, when American tennis was in its heyday. Well, I think that the, the genius of what was done is that you took the negative of Andre refusing to participate and you make that the sort of umbrella that the entire thematic lives under. And I'm curious to know um, what kind of effort did you make to try to lock Andre in? I was hosting those events at the Greenbrier with Sampras and Andre and McEnroe and Courier for a couple of years, and I ran into Andre, and, and I knew Andre a teeny bit, but um, I, you know, I knew Steffi very well because I played against her for m many years on the circuit, and um, and I, I said to I didn't realize him, you guys overlapped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I, uh, I spoke to Andre, and I said, hey, you know, I'm working on this project about Nick, and this was in the very early, you know, when we were developing the project, and I said, I'm working on this project, you know, you know, I'd like for you to participate, and, you know, would you, would you be into it? And he says, yeah, get your deal, get your deal. And so then, you know, we had a deal with ESPN, and then it fell through. And then um, the director, Jason, he was the one then to, to pursue Andre and, and go after it. Everyone else I was in touch with. So, you know, Andre, you know, well, for whatever reason said and that he didn't want to participate. And I get it. I understand that. And I mean, did he actually, did he shut it down or did he just let it go to black? No, he, he didn't shut anything down. He just, he didn't want to do it. You know, I get it. You know, and who knows what the, you know, what really happened there. And, and it's their business. And, um, you know, I spoke to Monica Sellis at length and um, knew her. We overlapped a little bit as well. And I'd always gotten along with Monica. And, you know, we were all set to interview her. And then... At the last minute, um, the director decided he didn't want to interview her. So, you know, we had Jimmy Arias on the in the can. We had him with a great interview, and then the director decided he didn't want him in the film. And so, you know, there were definitely a lot of things that we went head to head on because I was like, look, this has to be authentic. You know, this was my life. I lived it. Yeah. And I, one of the reasons that I wanted to do the film is I wanted to do an authentic tennis film, and there yeah. haven't been many. I, I think Ava DeVernay's Venus Versus was really good. Um, she's an incredible director, and what Venus did to, to get equal prize money for women, that was a story well told. But for the most part, I have found them to be really lacking in authenticity. So I wanted to do something that was really real and honest, and I think, you know, I think we accomplished that. I think you got there for sure. Um, I thought that the way that the film sort of keyed on that Becker-Agassi match um, it didn't sate my whole appetite for everything I wanted to learn and, and what I did, but I thought for the most part, um, and you know, obviously the proof is in the pudding, right? It was like really well done. And 
I thought it was it was pretty thorough, and he got and he got Nick to come out of the Nick shtick. Yeah, well, Nick, you know, Nick gets his uh, eight track and he plugs it in and he tells the same stories. He tells and, the same stories. And it was really just about, um, you know, how the all these kids affected him and and and, and the price you pay to to be successful. And if you want to be as you know top professional athlete, I mean, this is what it takes. And um, and it was about redemption. I mean, Nick made mistakes, but you know what? He owned up to it. And um, I have tremendous respect for him for that. And you know, it wasn't easy for him to sit in that chair and listen to those uh, questions over and over. But yet he, you know, he handled it. And um, there's something pretty, pretty darn cool about that. No doubt. And uh, as somebody who has uh, gone through the process, it's a tremendous achievement to make a film. You know, that counts for a lot. And let's move into our second set. This is what we call our on-the-court report. And um, do you keep your eye on pro tennis in yeah. a significant way? Yeah. You know, leading into Wimbledon, I'm curious, first we'll start with the women. Um, what have your impressions been, you know, up until now? Um, well, it's, there's a lot more women that, that can win Grand Slams now, so the field's deeper, which is nice. Is there anyone that you've interacted with that you think is... I mean, uh, Petkovic trained here before the Australian. I think she's, you know, got a great game. I'm surprised she lost in the third round of the French, and I'm surprised she didn't hasn't done better, but I know she's been plagued with injuries. Um, I love Muguruza's game. I think she's extremely talented. She moves like a gazelle. Um, she has all the shots. Um, you know, it, it it comes down to the you know you know are you are you razor sharp mentally? You know, can you hang in there for all those matches that it takes to win a slam? And you know, Serena's spotty, and she's older. And it's you know it, it comes down to movement. Can you hang in there for every point in three sets and be sharp? It doesn't seem. Like you can, you know, the days of just being able to show up and work your way into a tournament are, I don't think it's, it doesn't feel to me like it's still possible to work your way into a tournament. You're going to get, you're going to get cut down by someone who's playing week in and week out, doing the work. Yeah, um, de definitely. I mean, I'm sure there's easy rounds or players that you match up better depending on the surface. <clears throat> you know, better than others. But yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely, you know, the field's deeper now. Have you been on the grass at Wimbledon in the last 15 years since they've... I have they've, not. You've not. I'm not. You've not seen that slower grass? No. Have you heard about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I know all about it, but, you know, I, I, I like it when, you know, the, the clay is slow, the grass is fast, and, you know, that way that, you know, you have, depending on your game, you have a little bit of an edge. It seems like the, the surfaces are all a little bit close to the yeah, same. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. definitely. I like it, variety. You like the variety. Um... Is there anyone on the men's side that you know about that um, we should keep our eye on moving into the grass courts? You know, I mean, I love Monfils' game. You know, it's so athletic. It, yeah, I mean, you love watching certain people play. Um, again, you've got to win all those matches. Uh, of of course, Federer. This is the twilight of his career, and every there aren't many people I get excited to watch play. Um, he's one of them. I like Del Potro a lot. I think he's really overcome. A lot of adversity and injuries to to get to where he is, and um, you know he's got an incredibly big serve. Um, he's very clutch, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. so clutch. And just I love his movement for how big he is, how well he moves. 
Um, it's a shame that, you know, the Americans that, you know, if it weren't for Serena and Venus, I'm not sure the Americans would, in the last couple of decades, have had the kind of, you know, they, they've dominated American tennis, really. Um, with the, I mean, Sloan won um, the U.S. Open and then, of course, Roddick a few years back. But other than that, you know, the Americans have really, you know, not been what they used to be, in my opinion. But I feel like, you know, there's a lot of American, certainly on the women's side, there's like, you know, Kennan and Anisimova, um, Madison Keys. I think that the women have a lot of really top talent. Oh, absolutely. And Madison Keys is a perfect example. She should have had a slam already. I mean, I think she's one of the most talented players. And I feel like she needs, it's like, she needs to learn how to drive the stick shift. I mean, she has fifth gear down, no question about it. She can really play. But, you know, she's got to learn how to change it up a little bit and mix it up a little bit and get to net and close off points instead of just hitting every ball at Mach 5. But I like her game. I love her serve. Mm. And I think that if she really, really finds her form, that she could dominate. We, I'm curious to know what you think of the coaching carousel. Uh, Madison's not working with Lindsay. Venus uh, shut down her coach. Um, Sloan Stevens shut down her coach. Is now with her, you know, she's with Sven Grunewald now. Um, do you have uh, Naomi Osaka won two back-to-back slams and is now, I think, in a full-blown rut. I, people can tell me differently, but I think that she's not handling this moment in time very well. Um, what do you think? Well, I mean, I always, I always go by never change a winning game, always change a losing game. And, you know, when something's working, you stay with it. But um, I, I don't think the coaching thing has always been this way. You know, players are very uh, temperamental, and I think that um, – and very emotional, and I think they can decide something or be superstitious even and say, I, I, I you know, I need a change, and this isn't working for me, or somebody said that, or this happened, and um, – and it's 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 tough. I mean, the circuit is tough, and it's gotten tougher. And um, you know, you really need to have a good team around you, people that you trust and that uh, you know have your back on every level. And it's not easy. And it's not easy to be a coach and to be out there giving up your family time or your um, personal life to be traveling on the road. I mean, it's hard enough as a as a player to do it, and much less as a coach. Um, do you think that the players are are petulant and less, and, and are maybe the the money so big that their that their behavior is different? That well, I think you know it's it's a business. You know, unfortunately, tennis is a hobby for most people, and it's a business, and you need to treat it like a business, and you need to have your deal done before you get out there and know what the parameters are and the boundaries are. And if you don't outline those boundaries, it's just like life. If you don't outline those boundaries, then, you know, things can get a little uh, crazy. Moving into our third set, this is the portion of our show where we typically talk about players' career. And I know a few things about you, um, but I don't know everything. And, and I know you are from West Virginia. Mm-hmm. I know that you are one of the original Bulletary players. I know that you went to USC. You know a lot. And I know that you most infamously broke out a white cat suit at Wimbledon that kind of shook up that all-England club, so to speak. You ended up on the cover of every single newspaper, certainly in, in London, but it felt like the world. And I was, 
I'm just about 10 years younger than you on the nose, and I remember that moment incredibly. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to find out, like, how, how did you get rolling? Where did your, te- where does your tennis start? Um, it started out at the uh, Charleston Tennis Club. My mom uh, played in her weekly game doubles, and um, my friends teased me because I couldn't play tennis. And I was, my mother had me in horseback riding and ballet and swimming, and I didn't like any of those things at all. And then my friends kept teasing me and teasing me, and I didn't like being teased. So after two weeks of me bugging my mom and her shutting me down, I finally went up to the pro at the club and I said, please let me play, please. (laughs) And so he put me in a class, and then the next day he calls my mother and he says, "Um, I just want you to know I'm putting your daughter in with nine-year-olds because she can play. So I got into the game by accident. Do you, are, do you come from an athletic family? Yes, my dad was a captain of the West Virginia University basketball team with Hot Rod Hunley and um, was an incredible athlete and I'm the oldest. And so we always played games and, and I was, he, he learned how to play basketball young and he always had a ball in my hand and we were always throwing a ball around. So I think I established hand-eye coordination at a, at a very young age. And was there a robust tennis scene uh, there, or is there you just you just basically end up in going south? Is that no? There was in the summer. I had a coach, and my coach John Santrock, who is um, world renowned um, child psychologist, and he's written. He's like the leader in in the textbook field of child psychology. So um, he was my he started me, and he had played at the University of Miami and was a great college player. And so I worked with him in the summers, and I really didn't have a coach in the winter, but. My parents were incredibly generous and supportive and saw that I was pretty good at something. And then my mother started driving me to Arkansas or driving me to Toronto and to play all these tournaments. And so when I think I was nine years old, I was 29 in the country in the 12 and unders. Are there any interesting names that you did battle with that we may recognize? Um, Well, then what really was the turning point was... um, the National 16s were held at the Charleston uh, Tennis Club, which was, you know, probably the nicest club in the state of West Virginia then and still is now. Um, and so Chris Evert and Betsy Nagelson, all the players, would came to that tournament. And I, you know, ball-girled for Chris. And I got to see all these players from Florida and California, and they were really good. And so, you know, that was inspiring. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing today is it's it's nice to inspire um, the younger generation and these kids so that they have something to shoot for. Were there, were, there, were there any players, though, that you came up with that we may, you know, recognize? You know, Chris Everett. You came up with her. Well, she's... She's I a think, little bit older yeah, than Yeah, she's you. older than I am, but, I mean... That tournament was there every year, and she would come to the National 16s at my club. And so I would get to see um, the girls play. And then, um, you know, growing up, Tracy Austin, I played, you know, juniors against Tracy. Uh, Pam Shriver, you know, lost in the finals of the Easter Bowl. So, you know, we had a pretty good junior field um, here in America. And most of the good players were from Florida and and California. And And that's when... I think I was nine in the country in the 14 and unders, and Nick saw me play at the National 16s. And uh, he approached my parents and said, you know, your daughter's pretty good, and I'm going to open this school, and what do you think? And um, come down to Florida and check it out. And we went down there and went to the – did you ever go to the colony in its heyday? No, no, no. I mean, it was like being in the south of France. I mean, back then it was like, holy smokes, look at this beach and 
oh my goodness, and you know, I can play here. And I, you know, one of the big driving factors for me is I hate being cold. I've never liked the snow or rain or cold. And it was like, oh, I can be in sunshine and I can play three hours a day or four hours a day. And my parents realized that I was at a pivotal time in my, my junior career, that if I didn't get you know, more court time and coaching, that I was gonna fall behind all these other kids. And so I went down there with Nick. My parents ended up buying a second home down there and you know, came, flew down once a month to visit me. I mean, now it sounds kind of crazy. I say, what were you thinking? You know, and they're like, well, you wanted to go, so. Like um, when you say it out loud, it sounds a little bit crazy. No, it is. I mean, back in the, you know, this was like 1977. I was like, what, you know, you were just shipping me off down there. And, um, but, you know, it, Nick was incredibly generous with me, never charged me a penny. And, you know, the, you, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that I was in the right place at the right time. And, and then I got to train with all these incredible people and, and be part of, of, you know, a tennis dynasty of, uh, coaching. What was it like being down there at that time? You know, you're like, you know, I don't know, 16 years old and like, you know, yeah, I don't know. Were you guys like playing spin the bottle, then going to well, practice, li- then like all, finding breaking up with guys, and like no, do you go to school or do you blow off school? Like, what were you doing? Like, was it? Well, I went to was school. It fun? There were two different schools you could go to. I went to the good school, the hard school, St. Stephen's. I wanted to go to the easy school, but my parents wouldn't let me go to the easy school. So that was it. You had a you had a choice. So, yeah, you could so go it, to school. I went to St. Stephen's from like eight till twelve fifteen every day, and then. Um, then I drove 45 minutes, had a carpool. I would drive the kids. It was 45 minutes to an hour to get down the key to the colony every day, practice for three and a half hours, drive back. So I was in the car literally an hour and a half every day practicing down there with Nick. And then I live, the great thing is I live with a family. I didn't live at that hotel. I, I never would have made it. I mean, I was just spoiled. There's no way. And I live with an incredible family who became, you know, really a second family to me. And, um, so they took me in their home, and and I made a lot of friends down there, and um, and was like Anna Cone and yeah, Paul was down there, and um, J- Jimmy, and they they came either six months or so after I was down there. It was just me and the locals when I went down there at first. But you but guys were together kids. though in all. Oh this. yeah, we hung in. Kathy you know, Horvath. Yeah, we were all down there. We're all wanting to be on Nick's court, and um, you know, we were all afraid of Julio. When Nick wasn't so bad, it was like, oh my God, Julio. You know, we don't him, want him. For upset you, with us and for you guys that haven't seen this love means zero julio is all over it um you know it's a wild story man these guys out like julio basically says nick called me and said listen if you ask me to get paid i'm gonna fire you if you ask me how many hours i'm working i'm gonna fire you and they all just went down there and just kind of went to work yeah well you know nick was smart because the players you know Carling was from Canada. Nick, uh, I'm sorry, Paul and uh, Kathleen were from New York. He took, you know, players from climates where it was cold and you couldn't get that much court time, you know? And so then he put us all together and you know what it's like when you put talent together. Carling Bassett uh, has an amazing story. Um, You know, she was Canadian Mm -hmm. and had a very wealthy and prominent father. And she came there. Um, and Nick played favorites, as as you learn. Um, where did you land? You seem like you landed well, but others didn't land so well. 
Um, you know what? I was always grateful, and I always thank Nick because I, well, I think I was just happy to be not cold anymore in West Virginia, but um, I knew what it, f- for some reason, I think I was smart enough to know that this is really cool and that we get to play in this beautiful place, and Nick cares about us. And, you know, Nick um, is an incredible person because I, I, I believe that there's three things that you need to be a successful tennis player. And one is talent and technique, and the other is discipline. And then um, you've got to have that drive. And Nick, in the drive and in the discipline, is off the charts. They the say- technique, give him a you know, 50, 60. I'm not so great. But that's the least important, in my opinion. And so he really gave us um, such inspiration and made us feel that we could be even better than we thought we could be. I think that's the big takeaway of the Bulletary experience is that for all intents and purposes, he's a life coach, <laughs> more so than a tenant. The tennis is just the, is just kind of the thing, <laughs> right? He got you got, he got all of the people that thrived thinking that they could, they could be great. Yeah, absolutely. And and then, you know, the, the work ethic. I mean, you know, Nick Nick was in the military and, you know, he has a work ethic still to this day. He's up at 5 a.m. He calls me at 7.15 L.A. Annie, what's going on? I've already played 36 holes of golf. I'm like, holy smokes, you know. Nick. So, um, but, you know, th- that rubs off on you. And when you have your coach that is that is that driven and you see and you're around that work ethic, it you know, it's just sort of, um, becomes who you are as well. And I think um, he made us all want to be good. And, um, we knew, and we wanted him to be proud of us. Um, how do you decide to go to college? And then how do you turn pro from there? What was your college experience like? Well, um, Nick didn't want me to go to college. Um, he wanted, and my parents, they had a huge argument. And um, I was fortunate enough to have the scholarship wherever I wanted to go. And um, I ended up going to SC. And, um, and did you have like incredible junior results? Were yeah, you... I was usually in the top 10, usually right around nine or something like did that. Did you win the Orange Bowl? Did you win? I won the Orange Bowl in the 12 and unders. Um, you know, I was a good junior. Yeah. I was good, you know. And so um, the more I was at Nick, the better I was getting, the better I was getting. And then I went to SC and then we were so good my freshman year that I would race my teammates to see if I could win faster than they could. It wasn't a question of if if I was going to win, it was how fast I was going to win. And how many years did you spend? At two two years. We were undefeated my freshman year, and then I turned pro because at the time I think I was um, like 30 in the country and, and or 30 in the world as an amateur. So then I turned pro after that. So so you got to 30 in the world playing playing tournaments, tennis, yeah. Playing well, playing tournaments like on the. Like in the off season, basically. Well, I would leave school a little bit and go play a, a tournament here and there, and then you know. But you know, I had to w- work my way up in the qualifying and do all that, which was a nightmare. But um, and did like a, did a sponsor throw money and say, "Listen, you turn pro." Well, then you, you know, I signed with IMG, and then I was all you know. That was it, the career. Yeah. So then. And, I, and you know, you were you know you were a very attractive player. You had a lot of contracts. I had a few, yeah. What were your contracts? Um, I was with uh, well Pony, uh, Pony uh, Clothes, then Ken X, and then at one point Wimbledon Clothes when I played at Wimbledon, 
and then um, Weight Watchers. <laughs> I had to wear a Weight Watchers patch on my, on my clothing. And then uh, Sunbeam, I had a, another patch there. And then I, you know, I played with uh, Prince and then Kenex Racket. So I had multiple stuff going on. And in the 80s, mm -hmm. uh, the, you, I mean, those brands were throwing, they were throwing decent money at you guys? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It was good, right? Oh, yeah. And when, what was the moment where you knew your life was going to be sort of unique and and you know did you know did you end up at like a I don't know like a dinner with Mark Spitz or like I don't know like did something was there a moment where you're like wait my you know this is going to be interesting this is going to be fun we're flying to Rome and um you know I think I think when I first saw um Center Court at Wimbledon you know it was like whoa you know I, I did it I made it you know I mean because you know as a as a kid and you know from Charleston West Virginia and and seeing that on television and then all of a sudden it's like can I get there you know can you know and I, and I think so much about life is is having that dream and and wanting something and and really working towards a goal and and the journey is is the best part and that's what Today, being back at the club on the club level, you know, it's 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 about the journey. And and most of my friends from the tennis days are my friends from the juniors because we shared this incredible experience of going around all these clubs in the country and competing. How would you describe your pro career? Um, you know, I probably retired a little too soon. I, you know, at 27, I I'd never won a tournament in singles and. Everybody's like, oh, you're only a doubles player. You can only play doubles. And, you know, and I, I, I kind of wasn't focused. And I have, a, I have, I've always had a lot of other interests. And I had a hard time really training as hard as I probably should have. And it's tough. It's tough. And um, did you um, enjoy your time out on tour? I don't know. I mean, we talked to Trey Walkie. He was at Studio 54 with Vetus um, having a lot of fun. And, you know, I've seen the documentary, The French, and, you know, you see Chrissy and Virginia, Virginia Rizicci in that and stuff, and they look like they're having, like, a really good time. Um, the players now seem like they have, like, less fun. Um, I wouldn't say it was a lot of fun, no. I mean, it's, it's intense, you know, I mean, you've, you've got to, you know, protect yourself, you know, emotionally and getting too close to people, and you could play them the next week. I mean, I spent a lot of time with a Walkman on my head. You know, I was sort of tuned out from everything. And because you've, you've got to be, you've got to be able to, you know, ramp it up when you need to ramp it up and go play. And um, there's certain places I've played better than others. I mean, I loved playing indoors because there's no sun or wind, so I always played well. But what to answer your question to get back to, you know, once I won a tournament in singles, it was like I did it. You know, I'm, I'm all about, look, what is my personal goal? What do I want to achieve? Can I knock this off? Can I make this happen? And I won a tournament in singles, and I got to top 20 in the world. And unfortunately, I, I had a big flaw. My, my backhand, I went from a two-hand to a one-hand when I was younger, and I had a, a, a lousy backhand. You know, I had a great drop shot but and a pretty good backhand volley. But I think had I had a better backhand, Maybe I could have gotten to 10, maybe, maybe, maybe if I got lucky at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. But I was very realistic, and I did not want to be, you know, 32 years old trying to play qualifying at Wimbledon. That was never my my uh, my thing. Hang on a second. You got to tell us the story of this backhand. You had, you had a two-handed backhand. Yeah. And what happened? When I was very young, I had two different coaches, and I, I my backhand got messed up. And so... Um, you what know, I ended it? up going to a one hand, and you know, my initially I had a two hand that was pretty darn good, and then, um, and, you know, I, I 
was I was limited on that wing for you sure. Screwed up your backhand. Yeah. And what's your backhand now? It's one, and it's still. I've got a good drop shot still. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> no, but it's to, okay. But, but you know, my to, forehand was big, and I had a big serve, and I could volley well. And but to get to 19 in the world with no backhand is a great effort. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say no. I, but I don't I mean, mean to you say You know no, what I'm I, saying? I, I mean, do. today in this in this game today, you cannot have a weakness. End of story. I think you could hide behind your game a little bit back in the day and sort of, um, you know, make do, but now you can't. Did you have, uh, what was your greatest win on tour? Is there, is there a match you played that sticks out in your mind where you say, you know what, that's the best tennis I ever played? Well, I mean, I beat Yvonne Gulagan grass. That was great. And then, you know, Manlikova I beat on hard courts. I uh, beat Sylvia Hanukkah on clay at the French. That was pretty amazing. You know, I had some spotty wins, you know, and then, but to put it all together takes a lot. And, um, you know, I think, again, winning my first tournament, it was like, look, I finally did it. I won a tournament in singles. I felt like that was a, the monkey on my back that I would never be able to win a tournament in singles. Tell us about that tournament. It was just a Virginia Slums in Arizona, and I beat um, Diane Fromholtz, who I think former top five in the world. I beat her like two and one or something, and it was like, yeah, I did it. And then um, you know, you like eight doubles tournaments with six different partners, and um, you know. We read that you uh, played Chrissy and Billie Jean. Yeah, we um, Betsy, Betsy and I got to the semifinals of the the U.S. Open doubles. We beat them on. Uh, the U.S. Open, that was a nice day. So. Do you have a relationship with them? I mean, I always see them and say hi, and, you know, we laugh, and, you know. Well, I mean, I, get, I mean, you played them, and what was that like to beat them at the U.S. Open? Well, Chris and I played doubles one year, and we won a tournament um, at Hilton Head. You and Chrissy. Yeah, and, and actually, that, I think that was the first time Steffi had beat her in the finals of singles, and I was nervous because I thought, oh, God, Chris isn't going to want to play after she just lost, you know, maybe. And then we went out and we won. We beat Steffi and um, I think Toziot, the French girl, we beat in the finals, so that was great. And Chris, you know, Chris was solid, rock solid. I mean, no free points against her. And, um, you know, she was definitely the hardest to play against because you had to earn every single point that you got from her. Chris Everett. Yeah. You're 27 years old and, and, and you start talking that you're going to quit. Um, what prompted that? I just didn't want to do it anymore. You know, I was, I didn't know a difference between a Wednesday and a Saturday. And uh, I felt, I felt that I'd gotten as good as I was going to get. And I did not want to, I'd seen people slide down and I just felt like, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen. And also I was very, I'm naturally a curious person and there are other things that I wanted to do and, and, and learn and, um, and I did it. And I, it, again, it was like my personal thing, like I did it, I got to 19 and nine doubles and you know. It's a great effort. Now you have to tell us the story. Now I've heard it from an accomplice, uh, Ian Hamilton. What is the story of the white cat suit? I mean. The story of the white cat suit is, I was dating Ian at the time and I was on the, the indoor circuit. Ian is Ian Hamilton. For those who have not listened to his podcast we did with him, he is the original head of Nike Tennis and an absolute outstanding great guy and 
his interview is is uh, you know amongst my favorites. A lot of great information in there. But anyway, he's super super guy, Ian. So anyhow, we were dating, and it was during the winter circuit in in January, February, March. That was a winter circuit would be in you know Boston or Dallas or Houston, and you would play indoors, and it was cold, and uh, it was. 84, the 84 Olympics were in LA and Nike started making those tights. Now keep in mind, I was on a contract with Pony and um, he gave me some tights to wear to keep my legs warm and I'm 5'11 and, and I was like, God, you know, I have tights on today. He's, he, and I said, oh, my legs feel so great in these. These are amazing. And one evening we were out at the beach and um, just talking and, and I said as a joke, I said, can you imagine a white one of these at Wimbledon, a white bodysuit? And we laughed about it and we just thought, oh, that's so funny. And so then at the French Open that year in 85, we ran into Carlo Grippo, who was the head of Nike Italy. And prior to that, Ian had gone to Nike and said, look, can we buy Ann's contract out? Uh, we have this idea we want to do. It's perfect for Nike, but she's under contract with Pony. They tried to buy the contract out to get you into a Nike, a, suit. A, a yeah. Nike suit to roll out at Wimbledon. Yeah. And Ian said that it was like 14 grand or 15 yeah. grand. It was like nothing. Yeah, it was nothing. And they so wouldn't the, bite no, on it. No, they didn't bite on it. So then I, we meet Carlo. We have dinner with Carlo Grippo in Paris, who ran Nike Italy. <laughs> he said, I'll make it for you. I'll make it. I'll make it. And we're like, okay, great, great. And so we go over to England, and it's the first week of Wimbledon. I play Pam Shriver first round, and it rains for four days in a row. And Carlo has my address. He's shipping it to me in London. But I'm still thinking this is never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So the suit arrives, I think, on the Thursday morning. And I'd been rained out for three days in a row against Pam. And he actually sent two suits. One was a sleeveless, and it was very sheer. And then the other one was a long sleeve. And I was like, I cannot wear just one suit. This is way too sheer. You had to double them. Yeah, doubled up. And it was cold and um, sewed my pony patches on in my Sunbeam and my Kenex or whatever. And uh, one of my dearest friends, Betsy Van Hoff, was with me and uh, she was helping, you know, be my stylist and get me together. And, um, and of course, I checked out the rules and the rules had said, you know, what is deemed as suitable tennis attire in the eyes of the All England Club, uh, predominantly white. So in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, it's it's still all white. It's still what's their eyes, my eyes, suitable, very objective uh, interpretation. So anyhow, so I was all set to go play. I changed in the um, shower. So nobody really saw me except for Robin White and Mary Lou Daniels, who was my doubles partner at the time. And uh, I would get on the court in a track suit and playing Pam and and the Empire I'll never forget, uh, he said, prepare to play. So I took off my track suit and I had the white bodysuit on and he literally turned purple. I thought he was gonna pass out. Pam was not happy. And then I thought I was gonna have a heart attack and die. Well, explain I was like, that, Pam was not happy. Yeah. Pam was not happy. Yeah, yeah, she was, she, was, she was annoyed. And then I started going, oh my God, what have I done? This was the dumbest thing I've ever done. So the first game, I think I was returning and I shanked like three returns because I was just so nervous. That's center court Wimbledon. No, it was court two. Court two. Mm -hmm. That's the court. The graveyard with, court. But that's the court that has the- um, Overhang, yeah. The overhang with the cocktail. People like yeah. at the lounge, yeah. right? Were there gasps in the air? Oh yeah, within you know two games, there were photographers everywhere. Everybody was just you know crowded around the court, and that's why I literally was 
you know, like my heart was beating on my chest. And I was like, well, this is a great idea. And I'm going to, you know, collapse on the court here. And my friends, Robin and Mary Lou, were over on the side laughing hysterically. And I was like, oh, you know, this is great, Anne. But um, the first set I lost, the second set I was down a couple match points. I came back and won a tiebreaker and started playing really, really, really well. And then it became literally like 9.20 at night. And Alan Mills walked up to the court and he called our match due to darkness. And he basically took me to the principal's office at Wimbledon. Alan Mills, the tournament referee for 500 years. So he took me, and I felt like I was going to the principal's office. So he took me off the court, and he said, we have to ask you not to wear that again. You know, it's not, you know, suitable attire for the All England Club. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to throw me in the Wimbledon jail. They're going to find me. <laughs> this is the end of me. You know, this is terrible. What have I done? This is a nightmare. So then... Um, don't so the get next, thrown in Wimbledon jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do not pass go, you know. So anyhow, um, I uh, the next day it was even colder that, that day, and I had to wear my regular, um, you know, skirt and top, and then it was, I lost 6-3 in the third the next day, so. But the other part of that is it became the biggest story worldwide. Well, yeah, I think, you know, players hadn't thought about wearing... Um, you know, clothing and attire to, you know, increase their performance. And now, I mean, you look at it, it's like, you know, this is what they all do now. And and I think I was just a little bit ahead of my time. And the fact that, you know, it's not right at the U.S. Open, it's it's humid there. But at um, Wimbledon, when it's cold in the evenings, if you have long legs and they get tight and um, you need something to, to help your performance, you, sh you should be able to wear it. I mean, look at what swimmers wear now and um, ski, you know, skiers. Ian said to, you know, anytime people are talking about tennis because of the clothes, I mean, that was a good thing. So what's the moral of the story? Well, the moral of the story is, I mean, I think as an athlete, you should be able to wear what you want to wear. I mean, as long as you're not offending anybody. And that's like last year when Serena wore the cat suit, the black cat suit. Let her wear what she wants to wear. I mean, I've seen uglier, much uglier tennis outfits than, than that. And I think, you know, I think it was a little sexist. I think if, you know, if, if Sharapova or, you know, one of them had worn that, I think it, the reaction would have been a little different. Maybe, maybe even racist. Um. Uh, you know, I, I, I just think that um, it's a job and you should be allowed to wear what you want to wear. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 wall scramble. Okay. I say a thing or a word. I'm gonna say something. You say what comes into your mind. We go quickly, okay? It's not a deep dive. You ready? Serena. Unbelievable perseverance and determination. Venus. Uh, just has a lovely, lovely spiritual quality about her. Favorite player growing up? Uh, Arthur Ashe. Favorite player now? Mm, the Fed. College tennis? They need to limit the uh, foreign scholarships. Junior tennis? They need a lot of work and, and they need to stop, uh, you know, work on the cheating and, and um, be, a little, be a little more efficient there. We gotta come bring you back for more of this talk. Uh, favorite court? Could be any court in the world. The court I had growing up in Charleston that my parents built for me in Charleston, West Virginia. What's the address? Um, 1198 Johnson Road. City State? Charleston, West Virginia. That's it. Yeah. Favorite tournament? I'm going to have to say the French. Why? Uh, a lot of reasons. Uh, I used to love to go to the Jus de Pomme Impressionist Museum there. 
uh, I love the food. You and love I Paris. And I love the I love the atmosphere. I love you know it's 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 an incredible setting there. Um, I was fortunate enough to get to the round of 16 there in singles one year on clay. I don't know how I did it, but I did. And then the semifinals of doubles, and um, you know, I was definitely suited more for the grass courts, but I, I certainly played well in Paris. Move into our fifth and final set. We call this uh, the queen of the court. If you were the queen of tennis, and there's any kind of scepter swing you could make that you make a change in the sport, what would it be? Uh, I'd have the men go to three sets. And, um, and, and honestly, I think it would be really interesting to go to a no-ad format. I think in golf, um, you're penalized so severely for your mistakes. And I think in tennis, now it's become who's the fittest and who can stay out there the longest. And if it's uh, no-ad, you got to be razor sharp. I'd also like to see, um, I have a junior tennis team here at the club um, from USCA. I'd like to see them revamp their their website. It's a little, uh, it's a lot challenging to uh, to navigate. Their website's actually tragic. And it's a little busy. Um, and you know what, I'd like to see, I'd like to see tennis get fun again. I mean, one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing is, you know, I love, I love the club life. I love the community that you get here from meeting people and having fun and, and playing a game and, and keeping kids off their iPhones and playing Fortnite and that sort of thing. So I'd love, I love the, the club atmosphere. It brings back a lot of memories and um, certainly having a great time now sharing all my knowledge with my kids. Less video games, more fun at the club. Ann White, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit and uh, speak with us. Thank you for having us here at My pleasure. Beverly Hills Tennis Club. This place is just it's outstanding. Involved. You know, normally on our show, we we release the guests. We say, you are released. Mm-hmm. But since we're guests of the club, we'll see ourselves out. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. Huge thank you to Ann White. You can find Love Means Zero on Showtime. Thank you to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. However, the Malibu Racquet Club is the official club of Under Review. Big thank you to Trey Walkie. If you want to help support Under Review and get some great perks along the way, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. There's a lot of super cool things on there. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbeam, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At URWithCS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuff, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We will be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.